So conservation officers deal with Wildlife Act, wildlife regulations, the hunting, fishing, trapping related to wildlife. Animal protection officers, although wildlife fit into the definition of animals for our legislation, is specific to ensuring that animals have owned animals, have all the necessities, and that owners aren't allowing their animals by definition, and the definition is animals cannot be in distress. And distress has a huge definition, uh, and that applies to everything, dogs, cats, um, you know, livestock, any of those things. And so our job, and then people go, oh, well, that's like animal control. It's like, well, no. Again, simplest terms, animal control protects people from animals. Animal protection protects animals from people. And it's like, there you go. And you try and, you try and put it in those terms and people go, oh, I get it now. Because we had set up at um, whatever the park is that's just Gabrielle Dumont yeah okay. so we'd set up uh at pets for the park and we'd have people arrive at our booth and they'd be like I know what you do you gave me a ticket for my dog being nope not us and so you go <laughs> and so you've got to go into that bit and we uh we had looked at it and went how do you make the distinction so the public knows and then who to call for the appropriate thing because by the time they've phoned three different other agencies they're like nope that's not us now they're annoyed they just want help with their problem right so trying to get that initial okay who do we call for what and so that's sort of i went yep this is a perfect opportunity anybody that <laughs> listens will go ah i know what an animal protection officer does now <laughs> yeah when before there was so much friction in even getting the right kind of help. Yes. So yep. you were saying animals in distress and owned animals. So the definition of animal in the Animal Protection Act for Saskatchewan is anything other than a human. So it is everything. So anything that you can own. Now, they've recently changed the wildlife regulations restricting what pets because they didn't want. I, I think during COVID, a lot of the Ministry of Environment folks had the chance to watch Tiger King. And they went, yeah, we don't want those kind of things in our roadside zoos because it was allowable in Saskatchewan. So they amended the wildlife regulations so that people couldn't have lions and tigers and things like that. I How mean, long ago was this? Uh, that would be two years ago. They just amended the regulations. So up until 2021 in Saskatchewan, you could own a tiger or a lion. You could. And in fact, uh, for those people that, you know, are, are of an older vintage and are out that way, people remember the, I'll call it, refer to it as a roadside zoo that's out by Lloyd Minster that was there for the longest time. And there were bears and there were lions there. And that was perfectly legal, even though this person had no uh, accreditation with the Canadian Association of Zoos and Aquariums, but he met the minimum standard <laughs> for what was required. So feel free, go ahead, you know. So when they saw kind of the disaster, they chopped back a whole ton of things, which is why Saskatoon, the, the forestry farm, ended up with five zebra. Oh, from changing the legislation. From, change, from the change of the legislation, yeah. So what animals can't you own since 2021 now? 
Ooh, there's a giant list, which is really good because now things that in the pet industry before have been kind of, they let it go thinking that this isn't a pet that requires because you only have to feed a snake once a week and everything and it doesn't require. When in fact, these things have very specific husbandry needs. They're coming from a tropical environment. So they need the proper heat and the humidity and everything else. And, you know, I, I, I'll say pet smart or whatever. Uh, pet store will sell them, you know, a, a 15 gallon tank and your snake and here's a heat lamp and yep, you're good. And is that really good for that species? It meets the bare, bare. minimum. It'll keep it alive. It'll keep it well. alive, but how well? <laughs> and I mean, the whole idea is when we keep animals, whether it's for companionship or we're going to use it as consumption, from the time it's born till the time, you know, it, it, it passes away or is humanely euthanized by our, um, our meat industry, it should be treated the best it possibly can. One, as a companion, you want to treat your companions nicely. And two, if you're using that animal for your sustenance to allow you to live, you can treat it with the respect that it deserves. Oh, so then you see a lot of distress then. Oh, every, I, so I started doing this work, um, in 2005, after I'd gotten out of um, school, I went back to school after leaving the military to become a registered veterinary technologist. And so basically an animal nurse. And I went to uh, working in a clinic because after my time in the military, I'm like, okay, I need something maybe a little slower. I didn't realize how slow the inside of a vet clinic would be. So a uh, position came up with the Alberta SPCA peace officers doing animal cruelty, animal welfare investigations. And I went, you know, I've got all the animal stuff having just come out of college, but I'm not sure of my enforcement background. And when I went for the application, they went, a lot of your military skills are directly in transferable to enforcement. And they went, we'll send you to uh, what is the solicitor general, which is the same as our police college here in Saskatchewan. Went there for six weeks, did my training, and then... Uh, been doing that ever since. So I've investigated, I, I actually calculated this last year for our annual stats. Um, since that time, I've investigated 4,000 files. Yeah. What did you learn from file one to now file 4,000? Ooh, boy, there is a <laughs> lot of learn one. And I don't know why this is, it, it's something now that's newer in law enforcement. And that is kind of a trauma informed approach. So rather than asking with the person that you're dealing with, what's wrong with that person? Because what they're doing is just completely contrary to what you would expect. It's what happened to that person? Like what has happened to this person? And it, it allows you to deal with them in a more empathetic, perhaps even compassionate in some ways, ways so that you can go, all right, what happened to you that you've made these in most cases, if we've had to show up bad decisions in terms of the care of your animals and how do we fix that? Cause we can fix the animal problem. Ultimately we can fix the animal problem by if necessary, taking the animal into protective custody and removing it from you, going through the legislative process of laying charges and then you being prohibited from owning animals up to and including your life. But that hasn't fixed the human problem that caused it. So it's kind of, I don't think it should have ever been a new approach, but it's something certainly that's understanding because the reality is 
animal problems, because we keep them, are caused by humans that have problems. Yeah, it seems before you guys were looking at the symptom, putting a Band-Aid on that, now you're actually diving deep into what the cause is. Yeah, and we've actually worked really well with um, different agency partners. So it's a, got a weird acronym, but it's basically the Interagency Human and Animal Welfare Task Team. And it's essentially at uh, the deputy minister level where we started breaking down the silos because the health authority, child protective services, public guardian and trustee, everybody worked in their own silos and they'd have animal issues related, but information wasn't being shared. And so now with that information sharing and allowing people to, you know, especially the health authority with, with HIPAA and the privacy, they're automatically, Oh, we can't share information. It's like, well, if it's in the best interest of the individual, then it's okay. Right. It, I yeah, don't, cause it's for their health and it's safety. for their health and safety and their welfare. So giving us some information, if we've, you know, suddenly gone into a situation where there's clearly mental health issues where we've got, you know, hoarding, not only of animals, but possessions inside the home, you've got an extreme fire load where there's little paths where you can barely squeeze through. Well, with our charter of rights and freedoms as an adult, you're allowed to live at risk. That's okay. But when you suddenly become a danger to yourself or others by staying in that environment with the extreme fire load, the animals certainly can't be kept in those conditions, but it's okay to live at risk. So we could literally pull the children or the animals out of that residence, but the adult can stay there because you're allowed to live at risk. But then society has a duty. At what point is that risk too much risk? So then it generally falls on the mental health authorities with the Saskatchewan Health Authority, okay, making that assessment, how much of a danger are they to themselves? And that's kind of where we're, we've got that, that piece now where we're really starting to work on that. What do we do? Because we know there's not enough mental health beds in the province. So tiny baby steps, baby steps. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to solve it all this afternoon, but, yeah. but at least there's, there's things there. All the agencies are aware of it, and now we're communicating about it. Yeah, well, having that interagency cooperation yeah. on top of labeling the problem, that's a great first step. Oh, definitely. Like, we had a situation prior to this where we had removed the animals from the home, but the people stayed there, and there was no intervention from the human services because they weren't deemed to be at high risk. And one of the people actually died from starvation in their own home in the province of Saskatchewan. And so we were like, okay, we took all the animals. We gave the information that we had some concerns about these individuals. Yeah. Okay. We're, we, we appreciate your concerns. Off you go. You've done your job. Now we'll take care of ours. And then we find out mostly because we had charged the individuals as much as you want an approach with, you don't want to criminalize a mental health issue with our current legislation. The only way to do that is to put them through the court system, have a judge make an order that they can't own animals for a period of time or a prohibition order, which prevents further victimization of the animals, which is what we want. Uh, it will speak to denunciation and deterrence for those people that are truly just evil and are doing it not because there's a mental health issue. Um, but in saying that you're going, 
okay, what do we do? Because you can't leave people in those conditions in good conscience, whether you're another law enforcement agency like the RCMP or a municipal police service who are responsible for, for enforcing the act. But then they're also sort of, well, what do we do? Because every time we bring one of these people in, that's a danger to themselves and others. They go to, especially in a rural area, they go to an emergency room and is assessed by an emergency room doctor, not a mental health doctor. And the person is able to maintain some semblance of composure and they go, yeah, there's nothing wrong with him or her. And they, they kick them back out. And now everybody has done what they're supposed supposed to do, do, but in reality, there is some (laughs) gaps that now the person has been returned back to, you know, a situation that it's is an unfit situation. Unfit situation, exactly. You are giving them the care you can, but it's not the proper care. And that's that's one of the biggest ones that uh, all of my staff struggle with is we can fix the, the, the animal problem, but the human problem is, is the problem. And even though our job is the animals, everybody does the job because they care. Not only do they, uh, you know, care about animals, although... There are many times where we go, oh, we hate people because of some of the situations that we're in. But the reality is doing that work, you're generally a caring, empathetic person. And so this leaving people in these sort of situations doesn't sit well. I mean, I've had officers that have gone out uh, and spent their own funds to put groceries in the home for these people because they're nothing for the animals, nothing for the people. Well, I'm not going to leave this elderly person like this. You know, they're not oriented to time, place, or event. So many situations, and we stretch the rules about, you know, privacy legislation. We will do our best to find uh, next of kin, whether that's immediate next of kin or others to go, hey, do you know that your great aunt is living like this? Like, well, I didn't even know. I haven't had contact with her for four or five years. We've sort of drifted apart and yeah, well, maybe you should check in on them. And when they check in on them, uh, oh, oh. And so then they become that person's advocate with the healthcare system to, you know, because sometimes it just needs somebody to, uh, to advocate on their behalf. Yeah, you seem to have found a little loop where you can give them that tiny push. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. How were your rookie days? Oh gosh. I, I would wander into situations and I'm going, I can't even believe this is happening. Like, how is it possible that somebody has 125 cats? You see it on hoarders and you go, oh, there can't be that many of them. Well, you would be surprised. We are probably hitting about one a month right now of that level of, um, of hoarding of hoarding of animals though. Yeah. And well, and see, that's the really interesting thing. Again, the more you delve into the work, the more that you realize that you have to have to delve into the human side of things too. So the DSM five, which is used for diagnosing mental health, when you look at the, what it is, uh, it falls under OCD or something like that. And there is no determination between, there's debate, but there's been no definitive diagnosis that the hoarding of 
animals and the hoarding of objects is different. We had a, a lady that had the 125 cats and she had probably 400 Hummel figurines and then over 300 bags, uh, Ziploc bags of three golf balls in each bag. Don't ask me why three, but that's exactly what it was everywhere. So it's that situation where the way you do anything is the way you do everything. It, and I'm glad that you say that because it's something that I echo to, to our staff is I'm like, it doesn't matter what the situation is. You do the investigation the same way every time. <laughs> All the steps are exactly the same, whether you've got one dog, 120 cats, 400 cattle, it's exactly the same. It just, you know, some of the pieces in the species change. <laughs> so what are the primary calls you're being sent to? So primarily uh, species that we deal with is dogs um, and then cattle, which is not unusual because Saskatchewan has the second largest uh, cattle herd in the country and then um, horses and then cats. And that's, it, it goes in, in that sort of one and it sort of echoes the society's placement of value on animals. Cats, I can go to Kijiji and get a free cat tomorrow. Well, we're not going to get as many calls on them because the public doesn't place as much value on it. Dogs are a companion animal and we everybody loves their dogs. I think uh, last stats that I had was, you know, 54% of households in Saskatchewan had a dog. Um, and then of course you've got the farming and ranching, which, which fits in, but where the, where the value society places, the value on the animal is where, where we see our most number of calls. So cats, dogs, horses, cattle. Yeah. And so and they call you and what's a general concern you're being called for? Most of the concerns are conditions and that is not having adequate uh, food or water, adequate shelter. Interestingly enough, the legislation does too. We separate. Um, so we can use today as an example, you can have a dog house, which will create shelter, but depending if you've got a pit bull, if it's not insulated and heated, giving reasonable protection from injurious cold, those two things are separate. The shelter and the injurious heat and cold are separate. Um, the way that we look at it. So making sure that all of those elements are there. Um, but our biggest one is, is more neglect than actual physical abuse. There's a lot of times, and I'm, I'm shocked of, and, and maybe I shouldn't be, uh, maybe it's just the way that I am as a person. If I'm going to get something or do something, I'm going to do a bit of research first, you know, before I do jujitsu, I'm going to go to a couple of different places, see what the instructors are like, do all those things. Hey, is this going to be a good fit for me? What can I expect? Same thing. If I'm going to go out and get, um, uh, I don't know, we'll, we'll say, um, one of the new sort of cervid cat breeds that you can get now that is closer to a wild animal than it is to a domestic cat. Well, I'm going to okay, what's a vet that's familiar with that one? What's the specific food requirements to the serval cat? All these things. What are common ailments? What are common ailments? <laughs> All of those things. Yeah, everybody's not like that. So what you see is they get something. Um, and I, you know, I'm not telling tales out of school. We have a number of uh, new Canadians that have come to the province in different areas and they want to fit in. And they want to get a dog, but because of 
some of their uh, multi-generational households, having a dog inside the house isn't okay. So now you've got a dog that isn't suitable for outdoor living being kept outside without the appropriate one. So then it becomes, and I mean, our whole role, you know, everybody, oh, damn enforcement, they're just making money off of tickets and things like that. And it's like, okay, if I told you that 98% of all law enforcement encounters are resolved through compliance and education, most people would go, that's no way. And I'm like, yeah, it is, because all you see is the bad stuff on YouTube or Facebook or on the news about you see the, the loudest neg- voice out the, there. The negative interaction. <laughs> you don't see that the you don't see that the animal protection officer showed up and said, Hey, yeah, that dog needs a suitable dog house. That's not not suitable. And in fact, that dog's not even supposed to be isn't really a good outdoor dog. If you were to have gotten a dog, well now you're attached to this one. What can we do or what can you do to make sure that you've got the appropriate things. Well, you're going to need this, this, and this. Is that something you can do? Yeah, we can do that. Okay. The weather's not bad right now. We'll come back in a week, make sure that it's done. Come back. Hey, not only have they now done and fixed that, they've realized that there were some other shortcomings that that come along with that pet ownership or animal ownership, and they fixed that too. And you're like, thank you very much. I'm done. Files closed. I'm out of here. Oh, so through simple education that makes it so they can educate others and then it prevents future outcomes. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's one of those things that you just, you know, and, and gaining compliance, Hey, uniformed officer knocks on your door and confronts you with something that you should be doing. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes being told what to do. So if you can approach it in a way that, Hey, how can you and I work together to resolve this so we don't have to go through any further steps or problems. Let's work that way. Because I hate going to court. I hate testifying in court. And the reality is, if it's gone to that point, we've likely taken that animal into protective custody and the owner is never getting it back. Well, that is not a great outcome for everybody all around. Nobody, you know, as much as, you know, oh, well, the the prosecutor won the case and they were convicted and they got a, a $7,000 fine and they can't own animals for the rest of their lives. That's not a win. Nobody's won there. Well, other approaches could have been head to head, but you're so you're coming alongside them and guiding them. 100%. <laughs> if you can, if you can do that, I, I don't know. I know uh, what was very interesting when I was doing my training. Um, at that time they had changed the police act in Alberta to be the peace officer act because they had what were, um, community peace officers, kind of a, um, a localized, um, enforcement agency so that they didn't have to rely on the RCMP and then whoever the employer was could have input into what was being enforced. So if they wanted them to focus on more traffic safety stuff, they could do that. And so... During that course, there was four older RCMP officers and the government's decision at that time is if you'd been out of law enforcement for longer than two years, no matter how long you'd done it, to make sure everything's above board, you had to take take the course over again. So you got these RCMP officers for 20 years. They've been doing the job, obviously retired. Now they're deciding, no, I want to do something else. They're now stuck in school learning everything that they already learned at depot. 
But boy, oh boy, when it came to the communications course and what we refer to as verbal judo, they suddenly realized that every fight that they had gotten into a physical altercation with someone was a result of their poor communication skills. And the light, you just saw the light bulbs going off on these guys because, oh, you know, if I had just used my words better, I wouldn't have ended up into a physical altercation. Well, I don't want to be in a physical altercation with anybody ever if I don't need, absolutely need to be or I'm forced into it. So if I can use my verbal skills to, and really, am I naive to the point that I am in many cases using the Jedi mind trick to get people to do what I want for the animal, but is it in their best interest? 100% I am. <laughs> right? Yep. Well, it's a low intervention approach. <laughs> yeah. Like, I get it. I know it's going to be confrontational and it's never, hey, it's Officer Ferguson. It's, hey, I'm Don with Animal Protection Services of Saskatchewan. And then if someone is pushing or is reluctant or is really giving me pushback, perhaps then they need to have a small reminder of where they are within the power dynamics of this encounter and then Officer Ferguson comes out, but until then, as long as you're walking down the garden path that says we're going to get your feed tested or your water tested because your livestock are looking thin and, you know, it looks like I can tell that you're feeding them, but their body condition would suggest that it's not appropriate or adequate. Hey, let's work with your herd health veterinarian, the, you know, the livestock feed extension specialist from the Ministry of Agriculture to create a ration with the food that you have so that we can get these guys looking better. Because you know what? The better they look, the more weight they gain. If you sell them, the more money you make. So <laughs> win, hey, win. let's try that, right? <laughs> you don't have to see me again. <laughs> yeah, and that's the other one is you get that done, you will never see me again. And that's exactly it. How can I make this guy that's in a uniform on my doorstep go away as fast as I possibly can? Well, strangely enough, do what he's asked you. <laughs> yeah, do you know, in everybody's best do what's interest. In everybody's best interest, and then it's good. Shocker, but, but you run into those people that go, "I'm not doing what you tell me." Despite everything, <laughs> nope, not happening. And you're like, "Okay, all right. Well, I can see that there's going to be non-compliance." And at that point, we've got a couple of tools within the legislation. One is a corrective action order that they must take that corrective action by a period of time and we will follow up on it. Or if they are clearly going to be non-compliant and this is causing the animal to be in distress as it's defined, well, then I'm afraid it's getting in my truck or a bunch of trucks in the case of cattle. I'll call the cattle liners. <laughs> We're rounding them all up. And they're going with me and we're taking them into protective custody and you won't have them returned until you've paid all the costs associated with the seizure <laughs> and rectified all the conditions that caused them to be in distress in the first place. And with the way the legislation is, you got five business days to get that done. And those are your options. Feel well, free. Who takes and, option two? And, and that's the thing. I, I refer to it and, and I refer to it with the staff all the time <laughs> is I'm like, this is a choose their own adventure. Like they are choosing their own adventure. And, and people have said, oh, well, you're threatened to take my animals away. No, no. What I'm doing is I'm giving you 
consequences to your action or inaction. Here it is. Here's the information. We can do this or we can do this or we can do that. Let's not do that. Let's pick one of these two. Let's move down this road. Or... And, and if you go into, uh, you know, you take a gander into uh, the Star Phoenix or PA Now or the Western producer, and every story about animal protection services is about how we had this gross overreach and everything else. Well, as an enforcement agency, until a trial is done and completed, and even after then, we're limited as to what information we can give to the public about an ongoing investigation. But the person that's being investigated can put whatever narrative they want out. Oh, they came and they did this and they did that. And, they, and there's a partial bit of truth to it. But what they skipped over was the step of, you know, we'd been there three times before and provided them with education how to rectify these things and chose not to. Well, if this was a child being physically abused, how many times would you want us to come back to go, you know, you shouldn't do that before the child was taken into protective custody works exactly the same way as animals, whether that's through, you know, physical abuse or neglect. You're not going to let that go on. You can't let that slide. And, Clearly and it's still slide going on. And, and, and hopes that, you know, maybe they'll magically get it. I mean, we even have um, currently people that have been charged, convicted, and been given an order by the court that prohibits them from owning animals and then we can do inspections without a warrant to enter into their property at any time to ensure that they don't have animals that then subsequently we've charged with uh, section 127 of the criminal code which is disobeying a court order because they've just thumbed their nose at the court too and kept animals even after they've been gone through this process and I and I'm going with those people other than further um, involvement with the, the court system and regular, um, well, regular monitoring and check-ins, they're not going to change. Those people, for whatever reason, have chosen to not believe the animal protection officer, the veterinarian who we generally bring as an expert witness on, on any of our search warrants where we are seizing animals, the courts, the evidence that was presented to the court, the judge that made a decision they've chosen that they're not going to listen to all five of those different parties. What makes me think that just because now a judge has made that order on a piece of paper and they've signed it, that they're suddenly going to go, you know what? I better be a good law abiding citizen. Now this magic piece of paper, this magic piece of it. paper has made all the difference. <laughs> so we know. And then, I mean, when it gets to hoarding without intensive mental health counseling and help, we know that there's going to be a hundred percent recidivism as much as we take the animals away and do everything and have them get their house cleaned and all of those things, they're going to continue to hoard because it's a mental health issue. Yeah. Well, it's and a compulsion. They, yeah. It's a compulsion until they get the appropriate medical health. And right now, uh, in many instances, they can do the assessment, but you can't force treatment on someone because the court realizes much like an alcoholic until they decide to change their mind, forcing them to go to treatment, really isn't going to have the impact that you're looking for. So, you know, getting that initial mental health assessment, getting that order so that we can follow up without a warrant so that we can ensure that, you know, any animals in their care. One of the other things that's been included um, probably in the last, I would say, two years is a change in wording. So what's really unique and broad about some of the court orders is 
It's only limited by the prosecutor's imagination and the judge's willingness to grant it because it says <laughs> the judge may make an order up to and including not owning animals for a period of time, including life. Well, we can put anything in there now. So we've had people that were able to uh, keep a certain number of animals in a hoarding situation. So one or two, so they've still got some. They've got to be spayed and neutered. They've got to have a regular vet assessment every year and provide us with the vet report that they're in good health and good condition, allow for our inspections. All of this is at their cost. Now you've really done a good job in preventing further victimization because now these animals have to be regularly vet checked. <laughs> we can go check on them at any time, but we know that if we don't let them keep a couple of animals, they're going to go out and start accumulating more. So having one or two keeps them in that. So... Uh, and then you're able to still monitor them. And we're still monitoring. So it's it's a learning process every time. That's why um, working in law enforcement is, is so unique because every time there's a decision that creates case law, it has an impact on how you do your work. So uh, most recently, we had a case. Uh, it might be getting uh, too detailed for everybody but um, <laughs> that might be listening, but... We had what is, it's called the kineapple principle. And what that is, is if you as an individual are charged with similar offenses, they can't be that similar in nature that you can be convicted on both. Uh, case example is the criminal code says that you can't allow unnecessary pain and suffering to an animal. Well, in the provincial offense of the Animal Protection Act, in, dis in an animal being defined in distress, part of that is the animal cannot be abused in pain, suffering, or injured. So they were charged under both, and so the court upheld that they were too close together and too similar, but at appeal, the conviction criminally was upheld, which is a more serious offense, which is, I mean, that's good in this particular instance. But understanding now that if we're proceeding with something, and the other thing, part of the criminal one is there's got to be a mens rea or what we refer to as guilty mind. So it has to be willful. Whereas with the Animal Protection Act, you just do have, it's a strict liability. You just have to have committed the act or omitted the act. I don't have to prove that you did it on purpose. Whereas with the criminal code, I have to show that you willfully did that. And so it's much easier a far less burden of proof, like how can I prove what's in Tony's mind? In reality, it's actually even, it's more simpler than you think. So if I've made, if I've made an initial visit and I've said, Tony, you need to provide more food and water to your livestock. You also need to put more bedding down because we're coming during calving season and you need to put up more windbreaks. I go out there again and you've increased the food and water, but you went, ah, I'm not going to spend the money on bedding and windbreaks. And so now you've been informed. So I follow up and you still haven't done those things. Well, now here's your corrective action order that says you must do those things. And then I come to follow up. And even though you've been received the corrective action order that says you must do those things and you haven't done them and I've collected the evidence of it, that is now willful. You have just proved the mens rea portion of the criminal code. <laughs> it, 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 it is easier than you think. That Where, really is, yeah. 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 But it's all through education though. And it all started out, here's the education. Here's what, I mean, the idea of telling someone 
to, you know, for the cost of several bales of straw to put that down for them to bed in because they're not now laying on the ice and cold ground. Well, they're going to eat less because they're warmer now. Um, they're going to consume less feed. They're going to consume safer. less feed. They're, you know, <laughs> all of these things are good things. It's just, and you go, what happened to you? That, <laughs> yeah, let, that let's see what the cause of it yeah, is. What, what is the cause of it? Why, why have you chosen this sort of course of action through the process? But that yeah. comes back to that trauma response now. Yeah. <laughs> How yeah. long ago did you guys change that to the trauma response? We actually, um, last year, started doing with, uh, it's through the Canadian Police Knowledge Network. Um, so that is a large database that many of the police services um, throughout Canada use uh, as an online education tool. So if I want to learn about, um, not that I would need to in, in my field of study but or field of work, but if you want to learn uh, more details about conducting um, child welfare investigations, they've got uh, an online, you know, also oh, open access to any information you might 40, need. Forty hour, forty hour course, just the bare bones. So, say you, you know, you've been moved out of as a as a police service, you've been moved out of out of patrol, and now you're going to the child welfare unit, and those guys are busy doing investigations. And as your field training officer, they might not have time to hold your hand going through it. Hey, do this quick 40 hour course online so that now you at least have the basics. When you go out with us, you can watch what to look for until you get up to speed where you can conduct those investigations yourself. So this police knowledge database, how often do you find yourself using it? We use the course with all of our new officers and we do brush up work uh, on, you know, a particular subject, um, even something, uh, as simple as courtroom testimony, probably every year through all of these courses you've taken, what stands out to you? Probably, uh, one that refers to the violence link. And that is the link between interpersonal violence and animal abuse, because there is a very strong correlation about what we see in the cycle of violence. And so uh, a child is abused themselves in the home or they see abuse, animal abuse in the home. As they grow older, they begin to emulate that. They become the abuser themselves. And you remember, I mean, it's it's common sort of myth that's out there in the public that the trifecta of serial killers where, you know, they start out by lighting fires and then abusing animals and then abusing more vulnerable humans uh, before they turn into serial killers. We now know that by the time somebody is convicted of animal abuse, they're already halfway through their violent criminal history. They just likely haven't been caught yet. The Calgary Police Service did a really good deep dive during COVID of their statistics. And 93% of the people that were either charged or convicted with an animal offense had two or more violent offenses that they had committed previously. So this is ex an extreme link. Oh yeah, it is It is a well-documented, proven link. So when I get other law enforcement agencies going, oh, you're the pet detective, just the animal cop. And it's like, it's like, uh, there I am like Jim Carrey, dun, dun, dun. Um, Ace Ventura, here I come. Right? Because they, 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 
you know, they treat you like the little brother. You're like, <laughs> oh, you just, you know. And so in reality, you can go to them. Look, within this, there's so many things. And we've had a number of instances where what started out as uh, an animal uh, Protection Act investigation has ended up with guns, drugs, human trafficking, all of those things. Because once you got into the residence through a search warrant, we had actually gone there um, for a specific purpose related to animals. And we actually, by the time it was a, a large rural property in... Um, in just outside the city limit. Well, it's within the city limits of Calgary, but it was still a rural property. And we'd gone there for, um, with a search warrant for animals. And by the time we were done, I think the Calgary police service had lists, uh, had laid about 26 charges for firearms and other things and recovered a little over a million dollars of stolen property. And when we were going through the one, well, three of the four buildings that were being used as a residence, there was a pail beside the door with the loaded firearm beside it. I realized after what it was, it was the guts and entrails of a deer that they'd poached on their own property for providing meat for themselves, which also was illegal and they got charged for that as well. But this was just inside the inside the door of the house there was a pig carcass that was in the back seat of one of the derelict vehicles that he was then cutting cutting the meat off of and giving to the other um, residents that were squatters on the property like it was all you could hear was dueling banjos and what we got called for was a concern for a number of the cattle and the fact that uh, two of the alpacas that were being used, because alpacas uh, in many instances or llama are being used because uh, they're very good as guardians of livestock. So they do really good chasing coyotes and everything away. They're mean as heck. Oh, I did not yeah. know that. Yeah, they, they they're they're kept for they're kept for livestock protection, and uh, so they hadn't been shorn for a long time. So that's what we had initially gone there for. On our initial attendance, was met with zero cooperation and clearly once we got onto the property to have a look around like you couldn't you can't just look around but clearly what was in plain view caused some concern so it was like okay we're gonna need a search warrant to get onto this property to be able to see everything that we need to see they're going to be they're non-compliant let's just go back do our investigative steps to obtain the search warrant and go back out there. And we did. It was a large, large scale seizure that involved, um, because of the property and they knew that there were guns there. Uh, we actually had the Calgary police tack team and the RCMP tack team clear the property before we went on to deal with the animal stuff to make sure that it was safe. Uh, and they were pulling people out of homes, pulling all the guns out to make sure it was safe. And then even then, when we were going around uh, as teams, so an officer and a veterinarian was going around to the different locations because then we discovered that there was dogs and birds and quail and all these different stuff in different residents that we weren't even aware of initially in horrible conditions that they sent, uh, like there was a Calgary Police off Service officer with our teams at all times because the property was that big and that convoluted that they weren't 
I mean, even though they cleared it, oh, could yeah. somebody be still hiding there? So it was one of those ones that, you know, officer safety, they wanted to make very, very clear. So quite a two day, two day trip. So knowing that animal distress is such a precursor to interpersonal violence, how do you approach every situation you get into? So again, uh, officer safety is, is number one. We don't carry firearms. We have ballistic vest, uh, our defensive tactics, our verbal judo skills. And if we don't get a warm fuzzy, it's come back with an RCMP officer or a municipal police officer that's got gun, guns with them. Most interestingly enough, most of those people, when confronted with law enforcement, and then they realize that we're not the police or the RCMP, become more cooperative because they, they realize that it's an animal thing and they'll deal with the animal thing to get rid of us so that there's no further scrutiny by law enforcement for drugs, guns, and everything else. All the rest of the stuff that could be in because, the home. Because if we just do it, we tell them, they'll go away. <laughs> as long as there's nothing in plain as sight. As long as there's nothing in plain sight. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so you were saying that going to the vet side of it or the animal side of it was not as slow or as slow as you expected? What do you mean by that? So after coming out of the military, I had gone and done some things and been involved in some things where, you know, I wanted things maybe a little bit slower in my life, maybe a little less dangerous, maybe a little less adventurous <laughs> or trauma inducing. So let's go to the vet clinic. So I wanted it to be a little, you know, we refer to it as low speed, low drag. And when I got there, I was like, okay, I didn't mean this much low speed, low drag. It was very, it was very slow. <laughs> like it was very routine. It was pretty much the same day in and day out. And it was like, okay, after I've experienced that, whereas every single day, although you're dealing with animals and the enforcement of legislation, every day is different because you're encountering different animals, you're encountering different people, and you're employing your skills, it changes from day to day. Like every single day is, although it's the same work, every day is different. Same procedure. Same procedure. Different. Everything's different. And it makes for, <laughs> it makes for a, a very positive, unique, and you know, you have days that are, are, are bad where you've got it. The only thing you can hold on to is, okay, we ended up having to euthanize 55 dogs, but at least those dogs are no longer in pain and suffering and that's over. You know, that's the thing that you hold on to because if you didn't hold on to it in a positive manner like that, you know, you'd end up at the bottom of a whiskey bottle after a while. But understanding that the work that you do is impactful and meaningful, not only on the animals, but the people that own the animals. So you look at it that way. And it's like, I mean, I shouldn't say it's like any other job. Like any other job, it has its positives and negatives. But I'm not sure all jobs or occupations have the same extreme positives and negatives. <laughs> yeah, those big swings. There's there's some big swings for sure. <laughs> so where did you learn to concentrate on the positive aspects of it? It was actually through uh, dealing with uh, therapists through, I, I refer to it and, and it's probably a very old reference. So maybe, maybe some folks will get it, but uh, it's from a MASH episode, but my cheese slid off my cracker and it was like, 
I'm not in a good headspace. And it was depression, post-traumatic stress, extreme anxiety. And it was like, okay, this isn't good anymore. I need what I'm doing isn't working. I need a professional. So working with a, a mental health professional for a number of years. And now I still go regularly just to keep myself, you know, just to keep mm -hmm. yourself. Am I eating right? Am I getting enough sleep? Am I getting enough exercise? Am I taking care of myself? Am I cutting out all of the negative things in my life that don't need to be there because I've got enough with the work-related stress? Am I cutting out any unneeded stress? Am I being mindful of that? And then making sure that... Uh, yeah, and what's the narrative in your head? Yep. What's your, where's your brain at? Because, yeah. I mean, you can, go to a, you can go to a dark place in a, in a hurry if you want to. It's not where you want to be. Yeah. What was the breaking point for you to get some help? It was actually uh, a situation where I had openly disclosed to a supervisor. And at that time we could carry shotguns if we needed to with the Alberta SPCA to uh, euthanize animals, livestock, and things like that. And there was a situation, and I disclosed to my boss, I was like, you know, where I was in rural Alberta with that guy the way that he was and noncompliance and the abuse that I saw with that particular group of animals, I said, I could have shot him and buried him out in the middle of nowhere, Alberta, and they'd probably never find out about it because he was one of those reclusive type guys. They'd likely never even miss him. It'd be like the goodbye Earl one. And I thought to myself, self, and I immediately recognized my own voice, that's not a good place to be if you're thinking about killing people that you're involved with just because of the negative things that they've done. That's not your role. You need to go get some help. <laughs> that was a big move facing yourself. It was, it's scary. Like, as a soldier, I understood the idea of using a firearm to kill someone else. There is a purpose uh, behind it, and we can have a bigger debate some other time <laughs> about, about that. But you knew where that was. Over here, when you're in a law enforcement function and you're, you're starting to think that way, you've gone down a dark path that... You recognize it. You recognize it and you go, yeah, that's not good. That's not healthy when I'm, when I'm thinking like that, let alone then having the tools and the ability to accomplish it, if not for that little bit of just hanging on and going and having that, you know, that moral switch still well, intact that moral that's, fortitude that, there. that still says, <laughs> okay, you can think it, just don't do it. But then I think too, you know, because... A lot of us may have some dark thoughts. I don't know how everybody is, but people have dark thoughts. And the therapist says, well, you know, you're not your thoughts, right? Like it's what your actions are. And, and she had said, do you think that maybe you disclosing that to your supervisor at that time was actually a cry for help that you realized that you were in that bad spot? And I went, you know, you're probably right because I could have kept that to myself and kept doing what I was doing and got angrier and angrier and angrier. And she's like, no, nah, that was one of those ones where you, you know, somehow recognized that that, because she said, once you disclose that, they had no choice but to make sure that they sent you to see me. <laughs> yeah. Kind of a, kind, kind of a must do, yeah. you know, but she, she said, at least you realized it. So it was good.
put that in the log book so they have to address it. Yeah, that's not that's not really something that we can pretend we didn't have a conversation with Don with. Oh, I have. What, what, what do you mean he went postal and killed five people on a call? I, I have no recollection that he disclosed anything before that. Yeah, they, I had no prior knowledge of this. No prior knowledge. Yeah, they, they pretty much have to have to be addressing that. Yeah. So, what made you join the armed forces to begin with? Run away from home. I was 17, so at that time, your parents had to sign you in. I was done with school, although I did well in school, didn't care for school, and I wanted to do something different. And so it was like, hey, what can I do? And my mom wasn't happy about it, but my dad was like, nah, let him give it a try. So they signed me in, and what it was back in that time, uh, in 84, it was called the Youth Training Employment Program. So what they would do is, rather than fix you into a three-year contract, it was an 18-month contract. So they're not, either, <laughs> either party is not losing anything if it doesn't work out. And so I, I went and I went, well, geez, you know, guys yelling at me at basic training and turfing my clothes around and everything else is no worse than dealing with my father at home. In fact, it was a cakewalk compared to other things. So yeah, this was simple. Let's, and I said, I'm going to quit when I stop having fun. And all of a sudden 20 years had gone by and I was like, well, gee, I guess I got to look at maybe getting a career now. <laughs> what do you mean? You were in for 20 years and what made you decide you need a different career? I, it was another thing where I also had come to the realization, um, mental health wise that needed to do something different. There were some significant challenges with different deployments. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I did leave probably what would it be it would be almost a year to the day uh after september 11th because i knew what the ramp up and everything and deployments to afghanistan and everything were going to be like and i was like yeah i'm not doing that i've already done this over here and no not going back. It was real and it was nice, uh, but it's no longer real nice and it's time to move on. <laughs> yeah. You said while you were having fun, what was the most fun aspect of it? Oh gosh. Um, the camaraderie. There's still, there's people that I hadn't seen in probably 15 years that we had uh, gotten together with and it was like a day hadn't gone by. No time had passed at all. No time had passed at all because you have that common uh, bond with some of the difficult situations that you've gone through and with someone that only someone else that has done that can understand. Like you can tell a spouse or a friend about it, unless you've had that shared experience, you don't, you don't get it. Yeah. You, you knew what these people are made of. Oh yeah. You knew they were there for you and you were there for them. Yep. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. What was the scariest part? Uh, overcoming one of my greatest fears. Um, and that was my fear of heights. I knew at that time before they disbanded it, the Canadian airborne regiment was the number one unit in Canada. They were responsible for the defense of Canada. They were the quick reaction force. These were the, basically the Navy seals of the Canadian forces, uh, before we took over, uh, joint task force two. So, all right, well. I'm a keener. I want to do keen things. I better be at the best place. 
but you've got to jump out of airplanes to do it, but you're scared of heights. So <laughs> how'd you like to do this? <laughs> and so ended up going to, uh, at that time it was in Edmonton. It's in Trenton now, the, the jump school. Went to Edmonton and uh, managed to fake my way through the second week because the second week you do what is referred to as the mock tower. And the mock tower is a mock-up of the aircraft and you're set on cables and you jump out of it. And it is set at psychologically what is described as the, um, the height of optimal fear. And this is where if you aren't going to jump from this height, you won't jump there. It's about 33 feet. That's kind of the... That's a threshold. That's kind of the threshold that they've... <laughs> height of optimal fear. <laughs> yeah. And so I managed to managed to throw myself out of there the, not, the requisite number of times to pass. The nice thing is, and, and, and I think it's something that I thrived on in, in terms of uh, structure, is the Army is nothing but structure. So they reduce everything to a drill. So I'm just following along. Okay, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this okay, I can do that. I'll just make sure I kind of close my eyes and they don't see that I'm closing my eyes when I'm jumping out because they'll fail you, right? Because you, yeah. you got to know what's happening when you're jumping out of a perfectly serviceable aircraft. Right, <laughs> right. yeah. So, and, and it's one of those ones that, you know, we, we still joke. It's a three-week course. The first week, you separate the men from the boys. The second week, you separate the men from the idiots. And on the third week, the idiots jump. That's just the way that it goes, right? <laughs> we're, we're very, very, very self-deprecating. Um, you got to keep that mindset. But you got you to you kind of do that. And it wasn't, I didn't have a problem because now you're, you're jumping out of the airplane and the instructor is there in the plane with you. And then there's another instructor on the ground with a megaphone yelling at you about your landing coming up. It wasn't the first one. It was the second jump. Because now I realize what I'm doing and what I've done. And it's like, oh my God, I'm going to do this again. This is crazy. And so ended up doing it. Uh, I, I still joke. So you have... Uh, jumps that you have to complete. You have to do ones with equipment. You have to do ones at nighttime because you can expect it to be deployed. Uh, you do a water jump, so you jump into uh, an open a body, body of water. You land in a body of water. You land in a body of water because it's a perfect drop zone, right? Well, there's no there's no obstacles. There's nothing there, right? <laughs> it's good deployment actually if you think about it in a <laughs> from a, from sense. a tactical <laughs> sense. But I always joke that you know from then on all of my jumps were, were nighttime water jumps because I'd close my eyes and piss myself, literally. That's, <laughs> so there, you know, so. So you were still scared when you were doing this the whole time? Oh, hundred <laughs> percent. So you just get up there and you're like, well, I'm doing this. Here I go. I'm doing it again. Oh, here I go. And it's funny because your peers, they can sense that you're not a hundred percent comfortable with this. Right. And, and thankfully all of my buddies were pretty good about it and they'd, they'd poke good fun about it, but they knew that it was like, oh, he absolutely hates this. There, there's guys that absolutely loved it. They volunteered for more and everything else. And I'm like, oh, and they're all excited. Hey, cause we're going to do a, a, a jump out of the, the American aircraft that we're coming up doing an exchange and they're all excited about getting to jump out of the big star lifter. And I'm like, Oh, for crying out loud. 
<laughs> so what makes the Starlifter something you want to jump out of? It's a big jet plane that is probably, I think at the time, it was two or three times as big as the Hercules aircraft that we used. So instead of having people on either side of the plane, you've got people on either side of the plane, and then rows going up the center of it as well. You can deploy, like basically three quarters of our unit could fit into one plane rather than the 12 planes that we needed to fit everybody uh, if we were oh. doing a mass jump with the Hercules. Yeah, it was... That's a lot of people. Yeah. How do you keep organized? It is, again, the military is absolutely amazing at structure and standing <laughs> operating procedures and guidelines. Like I still have the uh, Airborne Regiment. It's an aid to memoir. So, you know, in case you do it and they have a section on patrolling and in there, you know, and everybody also should be trained so that it's basically next man up. So you should know what the next person's job is to be able to do that. But in the aid to memoir, they have what is referred to as a stream crossing annex. So how you will cross a stream as a small uh, three-man patrol, how it will go from start to finish. And then you practice that. And then it's right in there how you will do it if you come across a stream of a certain size. It's all procedure. Now, the nice thing is they changed it from a standard operating procedure to a guideline because they realized... <laughs> that keeping something that rigid could create some problems. You still have to have that human factor and some changes to the environment that, you know, we don't need to do it absolutely this way. If it's really close and we tweak it like this, it allows for that human component to make decision-making. And then they started doing things like, uh, you know, the risk-effective decision-making courses in our leadership courses and things like that so that there wasn't this old Cold War soldier automaton that they just Ro do this robot right you, <laughs> yeah. you gotta yeah. you gotta do some thinking of your own so too rigid means it's too easy rigid to break though exactly so <laughs> now now it allows for a lot more flexibility and, and it did too uh i mean certainly certainly more i we saw that progression from the time that i started in 84 to the time that i left in like 2003 2004 you you saw quite a progression that's there I mean, in that time, they even started allowing women into the combat arms trade. Oh, so you were there for that transition then? I was there during the transition. How was that? Interesting. <laughs> really interesting. Uh, it really made me look at standards for the future. Is there some serious repercussions if you lower standards to accept individuals or people into a group that are not meeting those standards. Yeah, well, with a high consequent occupation. It, it's not a good thing that at one point to pass my fitness test as a 30-year-old man, I had to be able to do 12 push-ups. You lowered <laughs> a standard. What? Yeah. <laughs> you have lowered a standard <laughs> to the point where... Push-ups. <laughs> 12. 12. Ooh. Those are the people protecting you and your country. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. Right? So gotcha. there, there's yeah. some, you know, there's some things. And, and I, I get it, but you shouldn't change things that significantly. God, Shelly Harris, she's probably my best example. Jesus, I wouldn't mess with her. 
<laughs> Shelly had no problem meeting any of the standard, right? But nobody lowered the standard for her. She rose up to the standard. She rose up to the standard. She was capable of doing the standard. She was capable of surpassing the standard in many cases that her, her male peers were doing. Okay, that's fine. But now, if you start bringing some others that aren't meeting that standard... Yeah, you just change the that, dynamic of the team. You change the dynamic of the team and everything. And it's like... And, and people realize it too. Yeah. I feel you on that. Yeah. What surprised you when you first started jumping out of planes? How quiet it is. So once the plane, you think that the plane is zooming by and you're dropping out of the tail end. So the plane is well gone. And the minute you're dropping and the only thing that is holding you up is a big bag of silk filled with air. But it's so super quiet. Right? So it's quite peaceful when the canopy is open. Yeah, once the canopy is open and you've had that, <laughs> you know, that little gut check of, you know, because we're doing with a, it's a static line. So it, you're tethered to the aircraft and it opens your chute for you automatically. But there can always be an issue that it might not open, right? That's why you have a reserve chute. And so you, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. Oh, yeah, there's a canopy there. I'm good. We're <laughs> lines aren't tangled now all now i've got to worry about is breaking a leg on landing we're good <laughs> um but it's super quiet yeah super quiet like just peaceful quiet and then then when somebody tells you you know you're when you're taught something you go okay yeah i have a good concept about that i know what you mean i 100 percent. and then you actually experience and you go i had no idea what they were talking about and that was the ground rush they're like okay from a certain height, you don't notice how quickly you're actually falling until you get to about 25 feet. And then it's like the ground rushing up towards you. And you're going to want to reach with your feet, but don't because you'll break your leg. And you think, oh yeah, no problem. I can, I've got that, no problem. And then it's a problem because you go, oh, that's coming up faster. And you either want to lift or you reach. Both what are you supposed of, to do with your feet? And both of which are really bad. <laughs> both, both have negative consequences. You just need to go, okay, feet and knees together. Right. Land on the balls of my feet. Roll. I'm good. But yeah, <laughs> you just, yeah, it's uh, it's a unique experience for sure. Like especially um, very different from, you know, the civilian parachuting world where you've got the the square canopy and you're following at a certain bit where you'd basically, you know, when you're landing, you're jumping off of, like stepping off your bench there. Well, with the round military parachute, you don't want to be staying in the air too long because despite what the Geneva Convention says, people will shoot you if you're up in the air. So they want you to f get there as fast as you possibly can. And so there's a lot of us that still have, you know, knee, lower back issues after years of doing that work. Because the descent is so much quicker than... The standard civilian. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can give you a, you know, if you want, we can go after this and have a have a quick check. You've got a one-story house, right? Yeah. Just go jump off that roof because that's how soft the landing is. With your parachute on? Yep. What? Yep. Every time. Every impact? Yep. Now include in that. <laughs> you got every, everything that you need to survive for the next three weeks, including beans, bullets, and water. So, so now the guy that is 225 pounds is a little closer to 375. <laughs> so you actually have to land in a specific way. 
Yep. Or else you're going to hurt yourself. Yep. It's it's still drilled into my still drilled into my brain. Yeah, you land on the, the balls of your feet, and then you angle calves, thighs, buttocks, and as you roll diagonally across the back. Oh yeah, to dissipate some yep. of the force there. To dissipate some of the force. <laughs> Standard stuntman stuff. Yep. <laughs> and a lot of the time, uh, you know, despite you thinking balls of feet, calves, thighs, buttocks, diagonally across the back, it ends up heels, ass, back of your head. <laughs> like that just. So you've had a few of those. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think there's. I don't think there's been a, a person that's done the military uh, parachutist course that hasn't had a heels, ass, back of their head. <laughs> so what kind of jumps have you done? Uh, so we did water jumps in Kingston, night jumps. We did get, um, because we were um, getting prepared for a uh, particular deployment, we did get authorization to uh, jump at what is below minimum safe levels. So normally it's 800, uh, 800 feet is the lowest that you can jump because by the time it opens, the speed at which you're falling and then the time it takes for your reserve to open, it's about that. Uh, but they wanted to get us ready for what was a potential, um, combat deployment. And so they want you there and on the ground, uh, like I said, as quickly as possible. Uh, so at one point we jumped below 800 feet. And at that point, it's almost no point in having a reserve parachute because if it doesn't open, it's not going to be enough time for it to fully, for you to cut that one away, deploy this one, have it open and slow you down enough before you hit the ground that reserves there just for show during that one. Yeah. <laughs> at those heights, at those heights. Yep. What's the highest you've jumped from? Uh, would have been my, when I tried to, uh, do the military free fall course. And so that, uh, I didn't jump. I was in the plane when the, so they, they did their jump first and then we went down to, uh, 3000, but, uh, those guys with the military free fall were doing regularly 12,000, 12,500 feet. What do you have to take into account when you're going from that height? <sighs> oh boy. That would be a, I'll, I'll hook you up with probably one of the, the best guys for that. Um, he's a, a, an amazing guy and he transitioned from the airborne to uh, the JTF two, the joint task force, the tier one operators that took over the counter terrorist team. But he's a military freefall guy. Um, he'd be the best guy to talk to about that. Sean we'll have a conversation Sean, someday. Yeah, Sean Taylor's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> he's one of those guys where you know when you're in the you're in that unit of the best of the best, and then you've got the guys that are the best of the best of the best of the best. He's he he's in that category. You realize there's levels to this. There are levels to this, <laughs> and you go. I am not him. He's <laughs> like I am not him. <laughs> All right. So you transitioned over to animal protection. Yep. What is the best part of your role and what is the worst part? Hmm. Interesting because I have said that this is the best job that I've ever had and the worst job that I've ever had. Um, start with the worst. Um, you unfortunately get to see um, people at their worst and then animals in their worst conditions. So that would be the worst of it. Um, the best would be that the work is impactful, meaningful. And when you do, I mean, much like, you know, paramedics, they go out, 
they collect somebody, they bring them back, they get them to the hospital and then are on to the next thing. And they don't know what the end outcome might have been for that person. Um, I, I, I'm hoping that it's similar. But when we get the opportunity to see the outcome, particularly with can, companion animals, cats and dogs, um, to see the outcome of this animal then, you know, being nurtured back to health in a new home and how it's thriving and how the, the people that own own or, or its caretaker now uh, are just loving on it and caring for it, you go, okay, that's a win. That lets me deal with these bad ones over here. So you get to the opportunity. We have a big board at work with before and after pictures, if we can get them. So you see things before and after, so you can hang on to those stories because they don't always turn out that way. So you always go, yep, that's a good win. We'll take that. We actually have a, a jar as well. It's a bead jar. Uh, and so every animal that we've taken into protective custody by color, uh, it's color coded by species. And so then it's a physical um, representation because you can get lost from going to call to call to call, you know, respond to investigation that now you have a jar that has a physical representation of like, holy cow, look at all the good that we did. So just make those little steps you've done every day, the little grind. Exactly. (laughs) Whose idea was it to have that jar? That's a good question. Um, I know they had come to me and said, what can we do? And I, we had done the, the before and after board and I actually found it and I showed it to our, our lead animal protection officer. Um, but I found it, it was something that the, um, Nova Scotia Humane Society who has their animal protection officers within the Humane Society had done. And I went, I think that would be a good idea for us. And I ran it by her and she was like, yeah, that's a good idea. What are the changes you've seen since that jar has been implemented? People are invested in it. Even the operation staff and the dispatchers and everybody is like, okay, well, you know, so-and-so took six dogs from a property today. Did somebody put the six, did somebody put the six beads in the jar? Well, I didn't, I didn't. Okay, well, let's make sure we get those beads in the jar. So it's actually, I think, given people to be even more invested in seeing the good work. And then not only that, when you typically would have, uh, disconnects with, you know, the dispatchers just dispatching the officer out to the call and, you know, the operations assistant is just responsible for the office and HR stuff and everything. They don't always get to see all of that stuff. So they don't get to be a part of the, the good work that's done, but they will certainly from, especially the dispatchers from people calling in and, and making the concern will hear about how bad things are. So they don't always get a chance to see that. So it gives them the opportunity to to share in that sort of positive um, outcome and positive vibe of the situation. Yeah, that everybody can be on the same sheet of music. Yep. So you have dispatchers. And so what are the roles? What do they do? So communications officer, we've changed the term dispatcher to communications officer because they're also qualifies an animal protection officer. You'd, you'd be shocked at the number of people that call in and go automatically want to make a concern but they just think that that person on the end of the phone is a minion. I want to talk to an animal protection officer. Well, if you call any other enforcement agency, can you, can you contact the direct patrol officer that's going to be out and doing the call? No. 
Why do you think we're any different? So, but having that communications officer also trained as an animal protection officer allows them to clearly, because they know the investigative process, they know what's required for reasonable and probable cause, all of those things, any of the questions that a member of the public has, they can answer it right there. You don't have to be sending it to me as the chief animal protection officer. They can talk to them, right? And so the operations assistant, she's my right hand. Like she covers payroll, HR, statistics. When I have budgeting questions that stats wise, (laughs) I'm like, do you remember what? Yes, I do. She's like a savant. She just has that stuff. And Away it goes. So yeah, it's it's super business. Definitely. (laughs) And then you've got a lead APO who's the lead animal protection officer who does essentially um, when we have new officers does the initial field training for them, and then we'll ride along with them to ensure that they're okay before we cut them loose to to obviously do investigations on their own, and then the rest of the animal protection officers. So you're saying those worst parts of your job. How do you recover from those days? Uh, you go to jujitsu and choke your friends out uh, or try to. Um, <laughs> the other ones is, again, of, making sure you're doing all those good things. Sleep hygiene. Interestingly enough, uh, I can't remember the study off the top of my head, but they said that um, now four to five days of seven to nine hours sleep is just as good as engaging in four to five one-hour exercise sessions in a week. So they realize the importance of recovery and sleep now, whereas before it was kind of, eh, exercise is more important, but now they realize that there's a balance. So, <laughs> uh, And then the other one is spending, spending time with positive, like-minded people. Like, I'm sorry, if you're Nelly negative, we're not hanging. Not even a little bit. Sorry. You got enough negativity. I've got, <laughs> I've got enough negative over here with, with those people and things that I deal with. You can have a bad day. I'm not saying that you can't have a bad day. But I'm. if you're, you know, 75% of the time, like, you're off a poo bear. I'm sorry. We're not going to yeah, be you're friends. Victimizing yourself, you're, you're, you're not no, trying to make it better. You're not trying to make it better. We are, we are not going to be long personal <laughs> friends. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Since you've started with the armed forces and now you're with animal protection, what's the biggest lesson you've learned? Biggest lesson that I've learned is people are all facing challenges and being mindful that everybody is facing some challenge you don't know about. So although I may have had, you know, we'll say an example of you and I had a negative interaction where we didn't get along for whatever reason, that could be very situational. You were in a bad headspace. I was a bad headspace because of something I shouldn't automatically go. That's it. I'm not dealing with Tony ever again because he's an ass. Well, Maybe Tony's mom died yesterday and I don't even know about it. I need to be a little bit more. One of the things from being a young man to now is um, having a little bit more grace 
uh, with people. When did you figure that out? 40, I would say 45. It was when I realized that the relationship with my dad, despite trying to, to reconcile and try and build a relationship, wasn't going to work. And it's okay, even if it is family, to not have that negative influence in your life, but still when interacting with them, I don't, holding on to any grudges, resentments, and all of those things, it wasn't hurting him. You're drinking the poison, man. It was me. I mean, he was living rent-free right here, right? Right in the top of my head. So it was like, no, you don't you don't need that. And quite honestly, nobody needs that. But if you've still got to interact and communicate and deal with that person, you can still do it with the humility and grace that's not negative to you and not negative to them either. Because yeah. you don't need to punish them because they're not even going to understand that that's what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. And that could really leach into other aspects of oh, your life. Exactly. Yep. So, no matter how small it is. No, it, it, it does. It, and it, I wish, I wish though now, and maybe it's something that I can, I, I can work on is that understanding that, but now I can apply it where I can apply it every single minute and second of the day. Cause there are times where I still forget it and I'm human, but it would be nice to be able to do that all the time. Yeah, Not a, quite there yet. Maybe a little bit more meditation and reflection. Yeah. It's a 24 hour battle though. Yeah. But soon it'll be automatic. Yeah. <laughs> Slow and steady. Yeah. I'm, I'm a work in progress. It's been 57 years. I got a few more years to work on it. <laughs> yeah. But aren't we all though? Exactly. <laughs> well, Don, is there anything I haven't asked you? No, not that I can think of. I really appreciate the time. Thanks so much, Tony. Of course. I loved having you today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah, we'll close it out.